Howdy, folks. Welcome to Down with the Dharma. I'm joined again by my good friend, Dat Fon, from the Blue Cedar community in France. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ça va? <laughs> Ça va bien. <laughs> bon. Um, so today we wanted to just tell stories about when we were monks with Thich Nhat Hanh and his community. Um, so just talking about our experiences and like our relationship with, with Thai and our relationship with other monastics like Thai Akhtan or Thai Doji. Um, and so, yeah, it's just going to be kind of like an open sharing basically. Um, but one, one thing we were talking about before I hit record was how we, I, I feel like Thai the way he was teaching to the Western audience is he, he wanted to have an open door for people that had a secular worldview, like a worldview of like naturalism um, where they didn't, they didn't necessarily tune into like teachings on rebirth or teachings on like relating to different spiritual worlds or realities. Um so it felt like when Tai was teaching, he would kind of frame it in such a way that it could be digested by people that had a, like a secular worldview. But in terms of like being his student as a as a monk or nun or even the lay person that just spent a lot of time with him, when you were around him, you always I, I had the feeling of like, oh, there's some spiritual reality happening here that's very deep and even goes beyond the secular worldview that he's talking about. Um, so it felt like it was like he had different ways of teaching it. Like one was his, when he would speak and another was just his presence or his spiritual energy that he was radiating. Um, and so it felt like for, uh, for some people who were more open to that kind of dimension, being around Thai, like it felt like that 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 part of his teaching was also there i guess um so so i guess i want to start i'm just curious like how did you become aware of thai and how did you how did you first meet him and then how did you decide to become a monk okay so in a nutshell <laughs> because this this can go on for hours yeah that show i i was in uh, austin i was studying in austin i, I was actually minoring in buddhism and mm -hmm. i think i've mentioned that this in different um, dialogues before um as i was taking these courses i was more interested in the contemplative aspects and i realized uh the phds at the university of texas didn't know basically what they were saying even though they knew it they knew it very well and i wanted to look for more contemplatives so unfortunately unfortunately for me at that time there was different yoga tradition that came to the university and um, i was less uh, interested in the traditional pure land approach that i grew up with because as a vietnamese growing up in america you have sort of like a split personality 
because you're raised in a certain way at home and you see another reality outside. And um, I realized that like the kind of like our, the spiritual ancestor had a difficult time to integrate themselves in the new world and adapt themselves. And they were more just preserving what they cherished the most, which was quite understandably. So I started started meditating from a, a tantric yoga tradition, um, basic uh, like a mantras with the breath and, and uh, astanga yoga, to give them an idea. Of. And I was going to like this ashram in Missouri every time I had a chance, and it was like a ten hour drive from Austin to do the retreats, and I became more and more invested. But I, one day I saw in the library a book from a Vietnamese uh, person and it was Thich Nhat Hanh. It kind of like jumped out because everybody else was like uh, Vivekananda, <laughs> Ramakrishna, um, uh, all the Anandas in the, <laughs> in <this one. laughs> the, the Hindu traditions. <laughs> Ananda something, yeah. And um, actually the the monks had a deep reverence for Thai and that struck me right away and I I was quite touched because he was Vietnamese and I didn't know who he was either. So I went home and I asked my mother and that's when my mother started saying he's somebody that really uh, helped to, to bring peace during the war and he was exiled. And she just showed me like a video of Thai speaking. There's a there's a Vietnamese um, like company that makes um, music and uh, live music, and there was an homage to the mothers, and they just interviewed Thai and his still sitting hut, and he spoke so eloquently about mothers. Actually, it wasn't anything about spirituality, but just from his presence, I felt like, oh wow, this is somebody that I could learn from. Because at that, I think at that moment I reached kind of like the ceiling because I went sort of everywhere in Austin and Houston to learn from anybody that taught meditation. Basically, the Taoists, the yogis, the, the anything that was um, in the domains of spirituality. Also, I I visited the Munis. That was that was quite an interesting interesting. Uh, approach <laughs> Krishna's. Um, but at the end something just strikes you for me something just like you you mentioned there's a sort of field of energy that even expands from the video a sort of peace a sort of a stillness I think that I had but a lot of like compassion a lot of like a Clarity, the way he spoke, uh, simplicity, and just like the beauty of Zen, also the way he held himself. Like, like we could talk about the noble ones in the text, and we, I felt like I was meeting somebody that was noble. So, to make a long story short, I had finished my bachelor's degree, and I was just working. And one day, I just had this koan that came. I said, "Where do I want to be?" Mm -hmm. and answer was obvious so I just uh, quit my job I sold my stuff and I just left and I did the first winter retreat in 1997 and from there, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I went to Plum mm-hmm. Village in 1997 mm-hmm. to, to retreat, and from there. So what did you do? Did you like write a letter first, or you just went and showed up, or what? what? Oh, in those days, you had to write a letter. Huh? There's nothing, nothing yeah. existed in those days except the letter. So, what wrote the letter, and you get it back a month or two months. Yeah. Once, once I got the the green light, I I left, yeah. and it was strange because I was I bought a one way ticket to France because I bought another ticket to actually India where I was supposed to spend. I was under what they were called like Brahmacharya training. Mm-hmm. I had taken the vow of celibacy and I spent some time in silence in this ashram just to be f- more familiar if this kind of life would be for me. But I think once I did the, the winter retreat, different events happened. In hindsight, I felt like they, they were all meant to be. Um, I had money stored for me the, la- the day I was leaving, more or less a few days before I, I was left. Mm. The winter retreat ended in Upper Hamlet. My money got stolen. I got furious. I saw Taidoji, and Taidoji, he said something just at that moment was completely ridiculous to me, but makes a lot of sense now. If somebody took something from you, maybe they needed more than you. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I remember. I said, well, this monk is crazy. Huh? And I just walked out when he told me that because I said, oh, there's no ethics here. But at the same time, I wrote a letter to Tai just saying how much I wanted to invest in, in the sort of a, the way of awakening, awakening the bodhicitta. And that moment, um, Sister Zhang came, came up to me and she said, well, Tai, Wrote, read your letter. Uh, this is going to be the first time it's said officially. I started sharing this maybe a few months ago because I said, well, Thai passed away now. It's good to see a different perspective from the Plum Village tradition. So we were a part of that stream. And um, and what happened was Sister Zhang Kam, as you know, is an elder sister in the Plum Village tradition that built with her bare hands Plum Village I think basically a very uh, karma karma yogi, we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bodies karma yoga. Um, she said, Thai read your letter. And it's quite a compliment because he said, uh, you're, you're a stream enterer. I didn't know what that was back in those days. I just said, okay, I want to get to India. And I, I just said, listen, I'll, I'll go to India. I'll go back to America. I pay back my loans because I had some student loan, some debt, I had. and um, then Ty he just called me, called me in that day, and he said, well, "What do you want?" And I just basically said, "I want to practice." And when I left that interview, our sister John Kam is gonna love this when I say because <laughs> I asked sister John Kam. <laughs> She was ready. She said, we're going to support you. We're willing to support your path of awakening. And I kind of joked and I said, what if I ordained and I left um, the week after, you know, (laughs) (laughs) just saying that you you paid for my student loan and all that. And I left and she looked me straight in the eyes and she said, that's your problem. 
And I said, this, this woman is serious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what was very touching, she started kind of like teaching me right away. And I was walking with her, you know, from Thai still sitting hut to the, to the kitchen. It's quite a, a short mm -hmm. walk. Mm -hmm. And she said, this is your home now. And there's like a trash on the floor and she picked it up. And that was like my first lesson as a monk that I learned from her. She said, the, you, you make this your home. Because I walked right by, by that piece of trash and I said, oh, this is like Zen, Zen training already. I was getting it. <laughs> and um, basically like you, I stayed about five years and I left to explore after. But I would say that it gave me a very sound foundation, especially what I call like the continuous practice to really have a good foundation to, to continue my path. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think for you, it was at the 21 day retreat, huh? You mentioned that the last time with Kristen. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like growing up in my family in Texas, um, in Fort Worth, we, we were not religious. Like we didn't go to church or anything. And, Pretty much my parents were atheists. Uh, like, I remember asking my mom, you know, do you believe in God or not? And she's like, no, that's bullshit. <laughs> and I, was like, I was like a little kid and I was kind of shocked, you know. Um, but yeah, like by the time I was in high school, I'm like, oh, yeah, when you die, that's it. Game over. It's a dirt nap. Everything gets done. Finish. Nothing. Like, um, but then... Like my friends and I were doing like psychedelics in high school and we, it's like we were starting to open to something. It felt like there's something there. We can't quite put our finger on it. Um, and then when I got to college, I started med doing meditation because I went to Zen Mountain Monastery and learned how to meditate. And then I was like at Vassar College in my dorm room, like meditating 20 minutes a day. Um and then I was in this philosophy class and the teacher was like, he drew a line, a horizontal line on the board and he said, okay, this is like a spectrum. And on one side you have a believer, like someone who believes in an afterlife, like a Christian version. And then on the other end, you have an atheist who's like, believes there is no afterlife. And in the middle, you have an agnostic, someone that just doesn't know. And he said, actually, the the believer and the atheist have more in common because they are sure about what happens when you die. They have a strong belief about it, whereas the agnostic is just doesn't know. And so I realized, like, well, he's right. I can't I can't argue against that. Like, I just have this belief about it, but I don't have any evidence. So he kind of knocked me out of my view of being an atheist and made me just be an agnostic. And then, so I did a lot of meditation in college and then I was also doing like body center trauma therapy and it was like getting into my body and having like pain and suffering from the past come up and be released. And it felt like that just kind of dropped me into a more intuitive awareness and just made me feel more open in general. And then the summer after college, that was like 95, I went to Europe because I wanted to go where my ancestors came from. It was kind of like a pilgrimage to like England, Ireland, Scotland, Germany. 
But then when I was in Germany, I went to see Mother Mira, who's a guru from South India. And she gives darshan four times a week. So you sit in a room with her and it's like a group of like 80 people and you're sitting in silence. And one by one, you go up and she touches your head and looks in your eyes. So it, it was like during the second week that I was there, basically, I had like this kind of big spiritual opening. Like I was just sit, I was sitting in the room near her. I wasn't going up for Dasham, but um, it was like, it felt like, like the sunrise in my heart. And then that made me feel like I was in this big open space. And then it made me realize, oh, like me identifying with my thoughts is not really who I am. There's like this bigger space of awareness that's here and it's radiating from my heart and 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 that's more real. And then that kind of like settled and then it felt like I was sitting on like a big field of light and it was like a thicker kind of light. And I had this feeling of just like I like I was a flower planted in the field and the center of the flower was like the center of my awareness. And for like a brief moment, that center of awareness and, and the ground became the same, were the same thing basically. And so it felt like for a brief moment, I just felt this like non-dual ground of being. And, and then it, it's like right after I had, right after I felt that it was like, Oh, well, the worst thing that'll happen is you're just going to fall into yourself. Like, like I didn't, it was like, I wasn't afraid of dying. It was just, I'm consciousness and I'm in this field of consciousness. And, and uh, I, my true nature is the consciousness itself. And yeah, there's nothing to be afraid of. Like, like when I die, I'll just fall into this ground of consciousness. <laughs> and so, um, so then I had, then my, my layers of ego came back, like me as John Freeze and my history as this lifetime came mm. back and I could just feel, oh, it's just clothing that I'm wearing. It's not, mm. Mm. it's mm. not the deepest reality. Mm. There's this deeper awareness that's like ancient, but new at the same time. And that's like my true nature. So I felt like it was like like a Kensho experience, like like a kind of mm. breakthrough. Um, but she didn't have an ashram at that time, and it wasn't like I could just become a monk with her and be a monk with her. So uh, I went back to Texas. I actually went to Austin, and then. So I was working in Austin. I did like after school care and then I was in carpentry work. Um, and then during that time I met um, the future sister, Kristen, right? So uh, she also went to Vassar, but we didn't hang out at Vassar, but we met in Austin. And so we became friends and then like we became partner, romantic partners. And then she was going to the weekly Thich Nhat Hanh group in Austin. So I started going. So that's how okay. I got going to so Thich Nhat Hanh. Shout Han out group. to the Plum Blossom, huh? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, that, that, that led us to go to the 21-day retreat in Vermont. 
And then so when I met Ty, like he was teaching like the teaching where like you you you're a wave on the water, like you you feel like you're an individual wave on the water, but when you touch your when you touch your true nature, you realize you're the water, you're the ocean, you're not you're not the wave. And I was like, oh, that that feels like similar to what I experienced. And then he's like, he's he's offering a way a way of practice. Like he's like, okay, you can become a monastic, and then this this can be your job is to cultivate this spiritual practice to try to realize your true nature. And I was like, okay, this I want. This is what I want to do. Um. And Sister Kristen had the same feeling, like she she wanted to become a monastic also. So so we we were engaged to be married, but instead of getting married, then we went to Plum Village, and then we we ordained in night the fall of nineteen ninety eight, basically. And so for me, it felt like I feel like like Mother Mira is my root guru because I feel like I've had my deepest experience in her presence. But then it felt like Ty is like my teacher in terms of helping me know what it means to have a spiritual path and and in particular what what is renunciation, you know, like what does it mean to become a monk and keep the monastic rules of renunciation so that I'm renouncing the worldly pleasure so that I can connect with a deeper spiritual happiness or spiritual energy and so it felt like he he gave me like a structure and then he gave me he gave me teachings that like the four establishments of mindfulness the eight consciousnesses teachings on emptiness that gave me like a vocabulary and then yeah i just felt his presence itself he it feels like he he had reached some level of deep realization and he was radiating this powerful field of spiritual energy and so it felt like that was giving me that was nourishing me or giving me this spiritual happiness that helped me with my meditation and um it was like keeping me in touch with this spiritual dimension basically yes um, so the, the the presence of a person with a deep level of realization is important on the path, you would think. Yeah. It's like I had kind of a brief is that window. Of, I had a, I yeah. that, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You had a brief I, window. I had like Sorry, a brief off. window of it opening up. Um but then it closed again and then whereas it felt like ty like something opened and it stayed open it didn't <laughs> it didn't close back down it was like whenever you were around him whether he was talking or not he was radiating this silent stillness peacefulness spiritual energy and so it felt like oh he, he, his awakening was always being experienced as like an energy field or a presence that um, you could be around. And so, so it was like, 
always reminding me, yes, this is this is here, this is possible. Um so it's like it keep keeps my hopes up and it kinda of, it resonates with my own spiritual energy and helps activate my own spiritual energy. Um but also the concrete form of being a monastic is is like it helped me like have a container or a solid structure um to be with that energy and not um exactly yeah yeah exactly i think that's something i see that practitioners we underestimate which is the 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 environment and we say the the sangha or the community or that practice usually the and the practitioner within that community i remember first setting feet in on upper hamlet i remember this moment very clearly because i had never left america since our immigration in 1975 to america and i remember just like it was the first time in france like i wasn't really interested in seeing the eiffel tower all these different things people were telling me are you going to see things i said this is not a tourist destination you know <laughs> i don't I, I could care less about the the eiffel tower or uh, paris you know <laughs> uh, and i took the f- first train to montparnasse i remember like a like not speaking french in those days and, and like a, a actually a catholic sister was the only one that helped me out out of so many people that i asked for help very curiously in that moment but i remember setting foot and tai was he was on the 21 day retreat that you were at probably no no yeah yeah it was 1997 yeah that Spring was the of 97 yeah emancipation so you were there uh in pridham's uh golf course i imagine that's where he no it was yeah, in Vermont. we went to visit we went to visit maple forest which was the monastery that pridham donated the the retreat was at saint michael's i think which is like a college michael, where, yeah. yes yes mm-hmm. And Michael. So I would, yeah, so I was at that time at Plum Village already, just to have a good context of where we were in time during that moment. But I remember, because I was so kind of like looking forward to, to seeing Tai in person. And actually, I had, I had a, another meeting, extraordinary meeting. It was with Tayak Tan. And, um, I was quite amazed because I his presence, Tayak Tan's presence could be, he had his own glow. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, that's quite special. And I think every awakening has its own flavor, has its own taste. And uh, Tayak Tan was more just like spontaneous, don't know mine, just like seeing through things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, he just had this... Uh, it was it was very funny because people came to see Titnat Han, but the people didn't didn't know Tayak Tan. They were asking, "Was this Titnat Han?" And Tai would Tayak Tan would always say humbly, "I'm just his student here, a, a practitioner, you know." But I remember just my first meeting with a floating cloud hut, which is right next to sitting still, uh, still sitting hut, just having tea with Tayak Tan. I felt like that 
maybe what you felt with Mother Mira, I felt at that moment with Tayyaktan, it was just, it was just timeless, a timeless, um, yeah, no, no subject and object. It was just completely timeless. And I realized, wow, he was just dwelling in this space because, yeah, you just saw him like this constantly, you know, when we talk about Satchit Ananda, <laughs> these things are not concepts anymore. It's like for the first time, I saw beings that embody these principles that we read about, like in America, beginner's mind, Satchit Ananda, but people had a feeling which is like, they didn't taste anything yet, you know? <laughs> yeah. Maybe had a glimpse. I think we all have glimpse, but like you said, to maintain it takes, I think, um, usually a lifetime of devotion and practice and dedication is not something you can, uh, like, a, for, for haphazardly upon, you know? So that's when it echoed with you. I said, this thing needs to be framed in a certain path of practice. And um, and for me, I, like I developed a very close relationship with Tayyatan. I was quite fortunate to to always be by his side for two two years in Vermont and in Deer Park and in the Upper Hamlet. And I would really tell you, I've never met a person like him in my life, because usually we say. Teachers are good when you see them on a on a on a stage because you don't see them behind in their lives, you know, <laughs> and you will get disappointed really quickly. <laughs> but I think that's where the the real litmus test is. Is like um, uh, once you live with someone twenty four hours a day, do like uh, trying times, you see what how they they meet the different moments, especially Tan's death and his sickness. For me, I think just how is this possible? How can somebody respond to suffering, to just to what we have a hard time dealing with in our history of humanity, not only of our, our, our lives, you know, wars, conflict, that they just met it. And it's just sort of what you read in the Sermon on the Mount, all these great spiritual texts, but you see it before your eyes and Sometimes you have, looking back in hindsight, I said, well, I honestly haven't met somebody like him, even though I've met a lot of skilled teachers, I would say. But, but so much curiosity also, because Tayak Tan, he, he was like a searcher also. Like he loved Krishnamurti. He said, every time I had a chance to go to Ohio, and he said, in those days, Krishnamurti was making everyone disrobe because Krishnamurti was like anti-spiritual, anti-meditation, anti-religious. <laughs> and he said, like, monks were disrobing left and right, listening to Krishnamurti. And he said, well, I wanted to disrobe, but I asked myself a question. He said, if I disrobe, who is the person disrobing? Is it Krishnamurti or me? <laughs> and he said, oh, I'm not going to listen to Krishnamurti. I should listen to myself, you know? And he taught me really a big lesson in my life because he said, if you don't listen to yourself, then that's not the path. You know, for him, the path is like listening to yourself, mm -hmm. regardless if you're right or wrong or not. You know, he really held that as a principle, as a Zen principle. But I remember him encouraging me to, like, he spent time at the Bhavana Society 
We've been mm-hmm. over to Gutanada in those days that was just starting off mm-hmm. the place also, which is mm-hmm. for me considered one of the pioneers in the West. He started with Zen Master Sheng Shang also. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Master Koans. And he was just like a he just showed me like a openness that I still try to cultivate today, you know. I because he, he once told me even the story, he said, even if you don't practice and you're in the environment, things rub off, like you said. <laughs> right, yeah. You want to me about a very famous story in Vietnam, like 25 years ago, in the uh, traditional Zen monastery, the cook passed away, completely unknown. And they, they burnt his body in the Buddhist tradition. When you burnt the body, you leave relics. That means you have some sort of level of awakening. And he said, wow, there was this cook living in this monastery for all this time. Nobody looked at him. And now he's just venerated. And he was just saying like in the, 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 the Tathagaba Sutra, everyone has Buddha nature. And I felt like Tai, when he looked at you, not only with me, with everybody else, huh? I don't think it was exclusive at all. He really saw the Buddha and the other person just because I think that he saw that in himself. You know, there's a Zen koan that we say only a Buddha can recognize another Buddha. And for me, that was quite like, a, yeah, different traces that leave their impressions even, even now. Yeah. yeah. Because it feels like, like when I, before I became a monk, I was like already into meditation and then I was into Taoism and learning about the three energies, the Jing, Qi, Xian. And so just, yeah, the Jing is like energy becoming matter. And so it's the food you eat, how much exercise you get, how much sleep you get, but then also your sexual energy. Um in men it's closely connected to but not exactly the same as sperm and in women it's related to like the eggs and the blood basically um so that i like i i was reading i was reading john blofeld who was like a buddhist taoist and he he did a lot of translations of like he did huang po, translated huang po um the chan teacher he did a translation of the i ching um and he did, he had a general book on Taoism that had a chapter on internal alchemy in it. And so he kind of explained the different, the three energies, right? So um, the chi is the breath energy and you experience it through the breath, but it's also like the subtle energy body moving through your energy channels. And then shen is the heart mind that you experience as awareness or being itself. Um but it, it can get caught up in your thinking. And so that's, you can lose your Shen energy if you're caught up in the thinking. So you try to practice meditation to get in touch with an inner stillness or inner silence. And that's how the, the Shen is developed. Yes. And then, so there's like a path of dual cultivation and then a path of single cultivation. So dual cultivation is like the non-celibate track where you're, you have a partner and you're having sex, but you, you don't have a normal orgasm, you save that energy and then you do like breath exercises to move the sexual energy up in the body and 
sublimated you sublimate the jing energy into breath energy and then you try to sublimate the breath energy into the heart energy and then enlightenment is like sublimating the heart energy into the Tao. Hmm. So I was already aware of the practice as dual cultivation, but then I felt like I was drawn to being a monastic and doing it as solo cultivation where instead of instead of having sex but refraining from a regular orgasm, it is I'm a monastic and I'm not I'm not arousing the sexual energy even to begin with. I'm <laughs> I'm letting I'm letting the gene energy be in my body and I'm not channeling it through sexual energy. I'm not trying to arouse the sexual energy. I'm just trying to preserve the jing energy in my body. And then when I'm doing awareness of breathing, focusing on the, the tantian, the, the breath energy point in the belly, I'm generating breath energy. And when I do that, it sublimates the jing energy into the breath energy. And then when I do the meditation of like, resting in awareness or who am I? What's the source of awareness? I'm getting in touch with the shin and then that that causes the breath energy to sublimate into the shin. And so then it's like this kind of unified energy field that I'm experiencing basically. And so, so the idea of being celibate is that you're preserving your gene energy and then through meditation practice and through interacting with other practitioners, where it's like we're collectively cultivating that spiritual energy um and so it feels like yeah when i'm when i'm with Thich Han or when i when i spent time with Tai Tan as well or Tai Doji was more my main mentor so he was like this french monk who had trained in japan for a long time and then came back to france and was a monk at plum village um so we all had we all had the common practice of keeping precepts. So everybody was preserving their jing energy. We all had the common practice of practicing meditation, awareness of breathing. Um, and then we were all open to the spiritual energy that um, we would feel like most obviously from Thai or from Thai Yaktan. Um So there were times when one time, one time we were in China and I was like uh, Thai's attendant and we were at this island, Hainan, Hainan Island, which was like near Vietnam. It's like an island, um, southern China. And we were at this monastery and we did this um, ceremony for world peace where we were chanting the Bodhisattva's name and um, chanting for world peace. And so at that time I was like playing the, I was playing a drum to go with the chanting. And so Ty, Ty said, okay, play the temple drum. Uh, I was playing it with my hand and I was playing this rhythm that the rhythm actually came from Egypt. It was like an Egyptian, <laughs> but I was playing it very slowly. Um, and so I was, I was right next to Ty and Ty was chanting. And so it felt like my, spiritual energy and his spiritual energy mixed together and then i felt his spiritual energy just like this kind of powerful radiating spiritual energy that was like radiating all around the temple it was like 
it was like just kind of these waves of energy that were going out like for like a couple of miles it felt <laughs> um, just radiating out and so it felt like my own my shin energy was like surfing or riding along his his spiritual energy and if i mean it felt like he was ty was radiating with everybody there but he was kind of the main focus of the energy and um so it was just like by being next to him this big spiritual wave of energy came through and it felt like it opened up my heart and i was just i was part of it or i was participating in it um so it just felt like uh, this i don't know it just felt like this is an example of what what we are doing as monastics is cultivating this energy and then resonating with each other and then if someone's a master they're they're radiating it more powerfully but if if you get near them it's like it resonates with your own your own jing chi and shi energy resonates with their jing chi shen energy mm -hmm. um And then, yeah, there was another time I was like in France and I was working on this book that was like the 20th anniversary of Plum Village and me and Sister Choi were editors. And like, I went to talk to Ty in the hut to give him like an update. And I was like sitting across from him. And at a certain point, he's like, come sit next to me, you know? And so like, I sat next to him and then it, again, it felt like, like his energy field radiated into my energy field. And then I just, I just started seeing everything in the hut was all of the colors were more bright and there was just this like pleasant, happy, every, it was like, everything seemed alive and happy. Like, like, like all of the objects, they weren't inanimate anymore. It felt like they were happy and manifesting out of consciousness. Hmm. And like, I went back to my room and it was still going. I was like, whoa, like I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm getting a taste of how Ty sees things, or I'm seeing it through his eyes. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, yeah, it's like this this silent teaching. He didn't he didn't talk about it. He didn't he didn't ask me what I was experiencing. It was just this silent teaching, and um, yeah, just these three the three energies, and then but then yeah, him him. I guess his heart mind having awakened to this deeper ground of being to where he was, like you're saying with Tayaktan, he was kind of constantly radiating this mm. Satchitananda. Um, and so, yeah, if, if, if you're just there, it rubs off on you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think that there are different, um, different elements to a path a path of awakening and i think like in buddhism with the three jewels the buddha the dharma and the sangha these are good, good frameworks to, to practice with or the hindu tradition when we talk about like um there's a sangha also the in the the ashram context the darshan and the and i think all these practices they're basically how to work with these three energies because um because these three energies are more or less, they're, they're not restraint and the way we're using it now in our like uh, culture, it doesn't really co cultivate what we call it, Shen energy, which is like, um, I once heard Tai said, it's like, 
he he actually quoted from the Bible. He said, "Man doesn't live with bread alone, and uh, we can move mountains with our will." You know, and and sometimes it's translated as um, sexual breath and spirit. Like, um, I like that translation because chi sometimes we translate like more as like energy, but like in Sanskrit we could say prana, which links to breath also and how we work with the breath and. and yeah, I think that's kind of like um, important elements. And if we're interested in uh, like mindfulness practice in a more holistic way, it's something that eventually we would uh, start uh, wanting to explore, you know, because I think there's certain kind of like glass ceilings we, we get to when we practice different things. I think the, the, the other, the opposite would be sort of like, because I think all the spiritual traditions, they're, they're quite rich already. They're, they're able to really preserve their, their practices, but how to integrate that into society. Huh? And for me, the more and more I look, is the key is kind of like when you talk about, like in Zen, we, in Taming the Ox, we, there's like the 10th the stage. Usually it's like presented as like a, kind of like a chronological things to understand the true mind. But I see it more on a much different levels, on a much more diverse level also. But the 10th stage is like returning to the marketplace, which is something you don't see in the Taoist taming the ox. The Taoist taming the ox, it ends with um, emptiness, which is like the seventh circle. Huh. And for me, the 10th stage is... Um, because I'm trying to write a reinterpretation of Taming the Ox right now and the more uh, like modern version of it. But I think it's more to express the four Brahma Viharas. And I think once, because um, I, I, I just look at my own life, you know, because I think the, the most difficult energy I think to work with, we all know is, is sexual energy. Um, and uh, the, the monkey mind, I think that's the, um, the two uh, first doors that um, practitioners they, they meet and I, I think the monastic path it's worth exploring to any practitioner periods of celibacy I asked to do that myself as a non-monastic um, I've been married for 20 years but there's a period for over two three years we had no I guess like intimacy like what you think but we there was still like a deep love and I, I imagine even with our age, our, our energy will change also. You know? But I think how we kind of work with these three energy in order to ra radiate uh, metta, karuna, upeksha, and piti. And I think that's where all the different uh, skillful means they may are important. You know, are, are those practices accessible? Uh, do people are people practicing it in a certain framework, how it's supposed to be practiced? I think that's sort of important also. But I think that it decides how if you would be successful or not, you know? I think that's kind of like a, but success here doesn't mean that you you fail, you know? Success means that for me, it's like you're walking on your path because I think you have to kind of like uh, explore your, your limits, your, but I think it's all part of like balancing these energy until they become 
for me, what's interesting now in my own practice is really like the moment before I sleep and the moment when I wake up and I see if, I, if I'm really aware in these states, uh, like you, the nature of, of the mind, you know, it's, it's already there. And it's, it's just a matter of just, because I think at that moment, our energy is very refined. You know, especially when we wake up, we, we really haven't activated manas yet, you know, and we really just to dwell in that moment. Me, I have a hypothesis that you're going to know what happened the moment before your death. And just have, and if you can carry your awareness within that realm, then you, we kind of like, in one way, succeeded as practitioners, you know, because, um, but I think that in itself, you have to practice. I don't think it comes, comes about through, through uh, non-practice. There, there's a certain saying from Lao Tzu. He said, don't, don't think that you can be awakened by not working with the three energy. And I found that very, for me, very practical. I think that's the, the practical mind of the, the Chinese mind, you know? Whereas some traditions, you might, some non-dual tradition, we might say like, you don't need to practice. That's already your nature. You can do whatever you want. And I think maybe it could be in some cases, huh? I think uh, you do see in the, his, in the historical context, different uh, masters like that. But I think taking it within our context, it could be deeply misinterpreted or you might be just fooling yourself, which is a lot of, um, I guess, uh, Western people who claim to have some sort of awakening. We more or less like, um, like Bob Marley said, you can fool one person once, but you can't fool them <laughs> twice. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the generation before they got fooled a little bit. But I mean, the, the second the new generation don't don't get fooled twice. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like well, I don't know. I've been, I've been paying attention to that the experience of when I'm going to sleep, and it's like okay, there's I'm experiencing this awareness. It's just there all the time. If I let go, you know, some, there's moments where my mind becomes still, and I'm just experiencing the awareness itself. And then it, it feels like like going to sleep is like like I'm going back into my house. Like I'm I'm sitting at the front door looking out. Um, but if I let go of trying to do anything, and I've, if I'm just resting in awareness, it's like I'm just sit, I'm sitting outside the front door of my house, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting for myself to be absorbed by by the house. Right? <laughs> it's like the house is like my home. It's like awareness itself. Um, and yeah, can, can I just let go and be there? Um, notice when my mind moves. Um, and then if, you know, if I'm, if I'm using my willpower to make the mind move, let go of, let go of my willpower doing it. Uh, so I'm, yeah. Um, but yeah, I have I haven't really done it seriously, and I haven't done it long enough. But I can see how it's a practice where it's like 
you're you're just you're kind of cozying up next to Satchitananda. And like what Ramana was saying is like, you know, you have the waking state, the dream state, the deep sleep state. Yes. And the thing that remains constant is awareness itself in all of those three states. Exactly. Yeah. It's always there. Yeah. So if you can just like same thing, like if I'm sitting next to Thai or I'm sitting next to Tayaktan, it's like exactly. I'm sitting I'm sitting next to this awareness. Yeah, and I think like the, the Buddhist uh text, especially the like um the Bihaya Sutra from the Pali Canon and the Sudagama Sutra is more the Mahayana text, which I think it, it explicitly goes into that more because they say the nature of hearing is not sound. And I think those are just very clear pointers. And once you turn that uh, hearing inwardly, you know, so your mind doesn't need any objects anymore. Whereas the beginning, like a non-meditator, more or less were conditioned by the objects of mind. You know? And I think that when we learn how to meditate slowly, we, we release that um, identification with the objects of mind. So we can just rest in that nature. And I think that's where um, it's interesting because I, I'm very fascinated because when we talk about the four Brahma Viharas, it's like usually I've met different people that develop different energies very, I think, um, very well. I think like uh, Ama, she embodies compassion. You know, and there's some people who really embody love. I think the Greek philosopher, they embody a lot of what we call equanimity, like the, the Stoics. And, but for me, what I've realized, like when I live with Thai and Thai Yaktan, is they're really by nature empty, all four of them. And they knew how to use these four energies. And I remember like, once Tai he was saying, if your love doesn't have equanimity in it, then it's not true love, you know, because you're still <laughs> a preference. And I think they, because I, I always thought that equanimity was the most important, but I'm starting to realize, in fact, they they all are just empty by nature, and they're they they inter are together, you know. So, and I really find it how. Like fascinating how like how Tayaktan you could just express joy one moment and like perfect stillness in another moment and unconditional love in one moment and compassion. So I think like and on from my perspective, from their point of view, like they are dwelling in the heart level. You know, the mm -hmm. the heart level. And that and after it's just a matter of like uh, Kind of like taking a quantum leap if you want to you know into into emptiness and coming back but i think at, at the same time like as practitioners i'm just trying to see how i can what's interesting is we call it energies in the mahayana tradition also like mm. in the Pali and the, the theravana we call it the brahma vihara mm. the dwelling of, of brahma but in vietnamese we say volant which is like unlimited energy Hmm. I felt literally that's how it was with Thai and Tayaktan. It was like that incident that you shared in China. It was just like, it was just unlimited energy just radiating from like a source that's mm -hmm. kind of like um, 
inexhaustible, you know, that, that doesn't run out. And, mm -hmm. and it's like they, they dug a well and they struck water and then the water is overflowing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah, we were just quite, uh, we're at the right place at the right time, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> sorry just one last thing one last oh, thought um, what i find sometimes was interesting because when we we talk about awakening in the west it's like awakening of what and to what you know and usually i feel like people have glimpse of what awakening is but they haven't mastered the three energies yet and you can see that in their daily lives, you know, quite, quite clearly. It's <laughs> they they had like a glimpse of a tantam, which is like the indestructible mind, the indestructible heart. And we've all had a glimpse of it, even people who don't meditate. Like I said, the moment you wake up, <laughs> there's something there, and the moment you fall asleep, and uh, and it, it just it's really humbling because you see that. I mean. It's to say, for me, it's like, because sometimes on the spiritual path, you may discriminate, you know, between like practitioners and non-practitioners. And I think that's where the different like um, koan, like does the dog have Buddha nature? It can help us. And or even the simple namaste when you go to India, you know, or different mm -hmm. uh, rituals we do to remind ourselves of that, of that nature. Right. Yeah, I feel like in the West, because we're so used to thinking about human beings through the medical system, so we're thinking about ourselves as like biology and chemistry, and so we're not tuned into the three energies, whereas, yeah, Chinese medicine influenced by Taoism, the three energies are like core principles in the Chinese medicine, so it's like a different worldview that is helping you tune into these three energies. And so the heart mind energy is like source of awareness. And it's like, you can't pin it down. It's, it's, it's more subtle than dense matter. Um, and it's, yeah, it tends to be more in the heart region, even though you can't ultimately locate it. And it's like, the Western model is more paying attention to the brain and the conceptual mind. And it's like identifying the self with the conceptual mind. And then, so it's like just, it's only the conceptual mind and then just the biological physical body. So it's like, we don't have a map that helps us tune into the three energies and help us kind of reorient how we experience ourselves and how we experience consciousness and awareness. So, yeah, I feel like I feel like we need to have more dialogue between this Taoist understanding of what a human being is with the med the medical Western model, so that um, we can collectively tune in more to the ener the three energies, and then be able to recognize that they're there, and then yeah, have practices to cultivate them, and then have collective ways of acknowledging in it uh, acknowledging it in each other and resonating with each other um 
And then I, the the feeling I have is like when I was a monk, it was like going on a fast. Like I was not, I was not engaging in sex. I was not drinking. I was not smoking. I was letting go of the more worldly consumption. And then I was tuning into more the spiritual food and I was being nourished by the spiritual food. So it was like I was on a fast. And it's like my my karma for this lifetime is like I could only go for so long. And then it was like, okay, now I'm now I'm hungry again and I need to eat more dense food. Yeah. Otherwise I'll get sick or have health problems or Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like I feel like I planted seeds and then the next lifetime I'll probably try it again, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and but some people can go on that fast and then they stay on like it's like they they're able to completely convert over to the spiritual food. And then if you're like Thai or Thai Khan, there's like you tap into an even larger supply of this spiritual food and that's where your nourishment's coming from. Yeah, I think and, it depends on our comic lot uh, as you will, yeah. you know. A <laughs> yeah. comic lot. But I think um yeah, I think like you like you said this because I think the the way we approach the path is sort of different culturally also. Okay, mm -hmm. when I realize when I ask people why do they come to the center, you have a million different answers, you know, but it's usually it's not for bodhicitta, for example. It's not, <laughs> that's one thing I, I, I realized. I mean, it's, it's dealing with small T's. We'll go back to different things, so small T, medium T stuff. But that's not really because I, I want to help the world transform, you know, or when I see suffering, it breaks my heart. Or it's like, why do people kill? We don't, I think we don't really ask these, these questions because the small questions really haven't been asked, you know. So we, we need to go through that first, which is, which is normal. And we need um, spaces and uh, skillful means to do that. I think that's all the better. That way we can move forward, you know, as a collective. And at the same time, when you when you spoke about, I think the difficulty is, like you said, because we do it with our our will. Like, uh, like for me, I was just saying, like five years, I'll be enlightened and and i would i have no more problems or something you know we have a certain image of what the what the path is like and whereas i feel like more is like just how basically how to work with these energies yeah and i think and i think we need just skillful means right away to work with the physical energy it's like work with this energy work with that energy but I, I realized basically when these energies are really running at the full capacity, like you said, it's just like a, a river of energy and everything is just flowing as one, you know, there's different koans that really resounds in me. Like it's like in Zen we say with one wave of the hand, we can, uh, touch the other side of the universe, you know, and it's like, because everything that you do has certain meaning now, you know, everything has meaning. And I think that's sort of like the, the fourth dimension that we're trying to explore in our society. Our society is a society 
completely lost the meaning. I was reading, even it happened, I was reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland that was post World War One, And he was already talking about that because when we're exposed to so much suffering and senselessness, you know, um, we need to find sort of a meeting and we need, I think the thing that mostly inspired me at Plum Village those early days was so many young people were there. And that touched me deeply also. It was the first time that I said, I'm not hanging around with like 60 and 70 year old people. <laughs> <laughs> the life that's worried about now their death, you know. <laughs> said, oh, these people, I mean, they could have chosen another life, which they didn't. And I think that's, I think that's one of our bonds, you know. I don't think that's the that mm -hmm. that everyone had to to really drop drop some some things that were defined as sort of important in society and look for something else. And, but I just realized like when you spoke about your agnostic view also and your the atheist mm -hmm. and, and the the God view is there like all sort of beliefs. And I realized that even at this point, I don't believe in anything anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, to put it conventionally, I would call myself a Buddhist, but uh, ultimately, there's even not Buddhist there. You know, it's like, it's very strange, but, but it's at the same time, it's like through using these skillful means that you arrive at that understanding. It's not, it's just not just like uh, discarding something, you know, and, and having no respect for it or, or just like, like it's senseless. It doesn't make any sense. And right. Yeah. It's a tool. And, and if you use the tool in the right way, it can bring about a certain result. Um, but yeah, you can reach a place where, okay, I've, I've had enough experiences that now I realize like I could have got here another way with a different tool. Um, it's just my karma that I was into Buddhism, Hinduism, so I use those tools. But I, yeah, I could have been Christian or Sufi or whatever, and I could have arrived at a similar place. And yeah, that it it's not about belief; it's more just about direct experience. And then, like we're saying, just the the experience of awareness itself is just it's there, and you're experiencing it. And to say anything more is is unnecessary. It's it's like yeah. So. Yeah, I think it's, it doesn't have a name, mm -hmm. though we need to give it a name. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I was contemplating even, it's like the wind, you know, you don't see the wind, but it's only in relationship. Like when, like when Nagarjuna, he says, samsara is nirvana and nirvana is samsara. I think that's a high proclamation because it's even turning kind of like the deep Buddhist thought around, you know, the saying, which is understandable. I think um, the world is full of suffering, you know, and who wants to be reborn in it? I, know. <laughs> I mean, I can understand that perspective, but in our modern day perspective, even that has sort of changed, you know, we don't live in the world 2,500 years ago where, I mean, there's only a small percentage that lived a good life and the rest are, had a less fortunate life, you know? So the notion of like rebirth has changed, reincarnation, you know? 
thanks uh, to science and different things. But at the same time, like we, when we spoke in our, the last dialogues, like existentialism, it's like the meaning is just in this life. It's like, how do I find the meaning in this life, which has now limited things a lot for our, because I remember growing up in America and at a moment I convinced myself that I believed in God. And that's where the awareness kicked in. And I said, why do I believe in God? You know? And I said, because everybody believed in God. So it's a sort of comfort, a false security, like, uh, like your, your stuffed animal or Santa Claus. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's sort of another false sort of comfort or being conservative or left. And I said, wow, we're all stuck in the skanda of grasping of perception. And I really knew unless I free myself from that, I couldn't even see anything at all. And I think it was thanks to like a, uh, the Hinduism, the Advaita tradition and Buddhism that has helped me remove some dust, if you will. Yeah, it's like it, it gives you permission to suspend belief. Like you can, you can be aware, okay, when I say I believe something that's me saying something out loud or it's me thinking a certain thought um but that's something that's coming and going in my awareness and like i feel like with the the buddhism and hinduism that i've been involved with it's it's more asking me to explore what's the awareness itself that yes, yes. The so I think coming yeah, exactly so i did I, there was a um, there's a man who wrote the power of now yeah that, Eckhart, like oh, a popular book. but i yeah. think there's many levels to the present moment right this, this man that wrote the power of now is just only the first level of the present moment which is yeah. like a, yeah no thinking uh, uh, like, it's kind of like a krishna murdy discourse like no thinking don't meditate and just rest present and i think that's one level of the present moment but i think the le present moment have doors that you're going to drop deeper and deeper into until like you're nowhere to be found actually, you know? And I think the contemplatives, they do point at that, you know, I mean, and I think at the moment it's like, we're kind of like living a present moment where it's more like for myself, you know, this is how people identify to the present moment, you know? And I think it's sort of, it needs to be explored even further, but without the right framework, it just stops there. Mm -hmm. And then when you look around you, there's no change, you know, there's no change around you. There's no change in your community. There's no change, but uh, you might be a little richer. You might be a little more famous, you might be <laughs> but that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, we call it like greenwashing, but I think there's spiritual washing that exists mm -hmm. right now also. And if we're not ca careful, we might be a part of it without even knowing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I feel like that, that in the Mangala Sutta, the Sutta on Happiness, it says, you know, it's basically saying the ideal ecosystem is monks, nuns, lay men, lay women. Um, and amongst the monks and nuns, there are monks and nuns who have practiced the Eightfold Path and, and realized Nirvana. So you kind of have like three levels, I guess. Um, and these days, I guess we need to 
add more complexity in terms of gender and um so it's not just a gender binary thing but but in general it's like lay people monastics and people who have reached attainment and it's not that there are not lay people that can reach attainment but just in general the the path of renunciation as a monastic tends to cause realization more reliably um and so like when we talk about letting go into the present moment it's like we should see it like the the traditional ecosystem would have lay people monastics and then people who've reached attainment and so that way the full meaning of what it means to drop into the present moment is kept alive whereas i feel like in the us it's gotten to where we only have lay people and people are saying they've reached attainment but it's kind of not clear what that actually means and mm. you could have someone saying yeah okay i've i've realized the present moment but in terms of the three energies and levels of awakening it's like it's still it still hasn't gotten to the deepest level because i think in america because we have even with us are we we have a, a lot of insecurity because we, we practice to get something first of all you know so i think people who have who have glimpse of the absolute i would say they have charisma and mm -hmm. uh, for me charisma is not awakening i mean when you see somebody is awakening for me it's like it's interesting we're living with Tayyatan, like you said he lived within the context of the community like everybody else you know it, yeah. it was like uh, there was no special treatment and there was no you know there's no uh, i realized this but it's like i think our old uh, structure of humans we lived in those structures like in the tribes I yeah. think the shamans were there. The shamans were there, and like I was speaking to my with you about my friend that li lives with the kogi. I mean, they have that within that structure where everyone's just together, and like you said, it's just rubbing off. It's conditioning, huh? Mm -hmm. uh, it's just rubbing off in a very natural way. But at the same time, they have their different practices and framework in order to cultivate that sensitivity which I think in our society, because we don't have those frameworks yet um, uh, within a d different uh, as mindfulness is being practiced, because it's only being practiced more on like a scientific level or like a secular feel good level. But um, the rest is like, uh, let's just uh, not worry about it, you know, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's, let's let our children worry about it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and it's like, uh, I think it's, di it's different because I think we took the monastic path also, but we, and we kind of like abandoned all the stuff that we thought was important for me. I have no like uh, a banana and $10 million for me. I would take the banana, you know, to tell you honestly, I, would, I was hungry. <laughs> you know, I, would, I mean, but you you talk about if you interviewed uh, one million people, which one would they take? You know, because I think I don't think they don't see the true mind. You know, I think the true mind would take the banana. <laughs> the false mind would take a piece of paper, but you can't eat a piece of paper. And I, I and I think, yeah, it's like um, how do we 
sort of like create communities again. I always go back to that. Yeah. Where we have, like you said, practitioner. I think the only kind of like setback traditionally, I think for Buddhism that I think we could learn from is like traditionally the monastic, they had the ontological truth, you know, <laughs> and it's the lay people that even though it should be a, a, an empty exchange, I think in reality, but I think you only can have somebody, Tai, he, he said, if you're lucky enough to meet one realized people in your life, then that will guide you for the rest of your life, basically, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I, that's sort of the key now. How do we have these practitioner emerge in our society? And I think usually they come from a contemplative tradition and they're trying to reintegrate into society. I don't know where it could come from besides that, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's taking refuge in the three jewels and the Sangha, meaning the fourfold Sangha. And the Sangha is the ground from which the Buddhas are uh, grown. Mm. And there can be like ups and downs, like times when there is a realized person in the Sangha and times when... Um, there's not someone who's fully cooked, but the tradition the tradition has the memory of it and and is aware of its potential of happening and that the practice itself, the process itself is worth doing. And then people reaching realization is kind of like it's just a byproduct of the process. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the the important thing is just to keep the process going and keep keep providing placeholders for realization to happen. Yes. So I, I see it like kind of more of like a, as with like a CEO and he made wires, the copper wires for different, like our internet and all that is one of the major player. And he, I was invited to be with him for, with his uh, executive committee for a weekend in the Alps. And I shared to him here, we try to generate things also, you know, produce things and i said it's like love serenity compassion and joy you know and i think that's sort of like if we're producing these energies then like you said it's circulating first within the the practitioners and after within that community and people who go into that stream they were into that current like a like a current the gulf stream or something you know it, it's there but once you enter it, then you know it's it's warm. It has another temperature, it has another speed, and um, it's what. Yeah, what I wanted to say also is like I think we should never lose, never underestimate our original mind. This is what I'm I'm learning. Because mm -hmm. uh, I have a sister, an older sister. She's in phase four cancer right now. Mm. She, we were raised the same way, huh? She became a doctor in pharmacy. I left to become a monk. And it was funny. I go back to the story when I left to become a monk. Everybody thought I was completely crazy. 
They say, why do you want to leave all this, you know? And I, people thought I, even I lost my mind. I had my best friend that said, you completely lost it, you know? And I said, just listen, we're having the same conversation 20 years after, you know? Because <laughs> time is <laughs> everything. Right, time will tell. Yeah. I kind of joke because they were like, oh, like uh, drug addicts or have a, <laughs> the, the, the problems in their lives. But I, they're still adorable. But my, but my sister, like her notion of time is different now. She had two rounds of chemo. Like we don't know if the cancer is growing or not. So she's basically saying, actually, I have a certain amount of years to live now. And her, I said, whoa, so you can start teaching me now because your original mind was to show up faster than much more than me, you know, because I, I still have my, my monkey mind and my daily mind to take care of. But she's really in that realm. But she's not a practitioner at all. Just to tell you how humbling it is. But she said, uh, wow, she said, I have a, like a niece. She's going to like a... Steiner school, like a well, school, yeah, where they make like they stress a lot of these uh, values, you know, these the, the four Brahma Viharas. And she, she, my sister is saying, this is coming from, I think her thinking was really like a materialistic, scientific. Uh, I don't b believe in anything, you know. And I said, what's important for you now? And she said, and she said, well, I can't believe we don't stress uh, compassion and love in our education and she said this is the most uh, for me i think that that's the nourishment that she's receiving now and that she's feeding off it's not like uh, like uh, my next paycheck or my next vacation i think all of that falls away once we get to a better understanding of like impermanence emptiness uh, nibbana, nibbana, nibbana. But unless or the kingdom of God, whatever you want to call it, you know, that 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 desire transformed naturally into the Buddhist context, the, the bodhicitta mind, you know, the awakened heart. Yeah. And I, I usually just try to share at the end of the day, just contemplate on impermanence, you know, contemplate on interbeing. And usually should your worldview should... Um, or cosmic view should change a little bit, you know? Yeah. It's like just tuning into what you're experiencing and then letting letting the buffer zones kind of drop off and then what's what's underneath is there. Exactly. Yeah. And I think we can all do that regardless of our belief or faith. It's just a question of dropping into the present moment. I think that's what Buddha did, you know, <laughs> he just dropped very deeply into the present moment. And, and that's what, like his whole doctrine and his whole practice was, was born from that. And I think that's what Tai did also, sharing mindfulness in the West. Um, there's a funny story with Tai when he first came to New York, he said, I was the only Buddhist monk walking around. And he said, uh, an African American guy with a big Afro walked up to me and he said, Hey man, what's your religion? No, hey man, I, di I dig your outfit. Where'd you get that from, man? And Tai was like completely shocked. And he said, well, I'm a Buddhist monk, you know? 
And he said, so, so that's, is that a religion? Those times nobody <laughs> heard of Buddhism, you know? And, uh, and Thay said, yeah, this is, a, this is my, I'm a Buddhist monk from Vietnam. And uh, the, this man, he just took out like a wad of cash. And he said, you know what's our religion here? Cash. <laughs> and I think so. <laughs> that can uh, end my story for this dialogue. <laughs> That's funny. There's a um, biography of Dilgo Kyense Rinpoche, who is like one of the great Tibetan masters. And he was teaching in the U.S. And there was like a section during a retreat where kids could ask questions. And one of the kids said, what's, what's the difference between money and nirvana? And Dilgo Kyense Rinpoche said, money, you can run out. Nirvana, you can't run out. <laughs> 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 so yeah it, it makes us really like the question is how do we ad adapt the dharma into society maybe with what uh, ethical frameworks um with what sort of uh is the community around us you know or are we following a certain framework because i do think uh, once you practice something you try your best to practice it you know I mean, mm -hmm. that's yeah. I don't really mix things. I try to really practice whatever people just to see if it works or not. You know, for me, I, that's my hypothesis. You know, I do it sincerely and see. If it, I think if you do something out of sincerity, then it does bear fruits. And after you, you kind of develop it and have an open mind at the same time. Yeah. Okay. okay, cool. So that'll be it for today. I uh, hope everybody enjoys this and um, we'll be talking to you again soon. <laughs>